0: Welcome to Rock Album Analysts. This is your host, David Lucarelli,
1: and this is your co-host, John Carson,
0: and we are joined today by special guest Andrew Carter, who is a music lawyer for a major film studio and also has a background as a music journalist. Um, Today, we're going to be taking an in-depth look at Destroyer. Before we do that, I want to very quickly welcome listeners. This is our first podcast that will be going out now that we're distributed to Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Spotify. So if this is your first time listening to us, a little brief background on who we are and what we do. My name is David Lucarelli. I have a Bachelor of Science in Recording Arts from USC, and I am a lifelong rock fan and have decades of experience playing in various bands, uh, as does my co-host John Carson. And uh, we don't do this at the beginning of every episode, but um, it just so happens that both John and I have some new music that's about to come out or has just come out. So uh, we did hear from a few people uh, asking us about our musical background. So we figured we'd take the time and play a couple songs uh, just to kind of show you guys what we do and where we're coming from. So uh, this first song is from my band Dame Fortune. Uh, it's called Am I a Warrior? And it's kind of uh metal anthem anti-Trump Pro Mask song. Um there's kind of a, a kiss connection because the drummer on the on the uh recording is Matt Starr, who uh is the current Ace Fraley drummer, and on bass is Michael Bradford, who is uh Produced uh, several Deep Purple albums and has been the live bass player for Kid Rock at one time and has worked with everybody from Madonna to Aretha Franklin, but uh, those are kind of his, his major rock credentials, I would say. So here is Am I a Warrior. John, do you want to tell them a little bit about the next song we're going to hear?
1: All right, the next song is from a an album that was actually recorded in 2001 when I was um, <clears throat> the bass player for a band called The Little Wretches. Uh, quick background on The Little Wretches: If anybody's from Pittsburgh, you've, I'm sure you've heard of them. Well, maybe not, but they are a band that formed in the 80s, and I, in fact, uh, through the through high school and college, was a fan of the band, and actually wound up playing um, in a band that opened for them on on occasion in Pittsburgh um, and then eventually joined the Little Wretches and recorded three albums with them. This is, interestingly enough, the last one we recorded, but is probably the one that has been the most successful. Um, It's uh, now receiving um, some radio airplay around the country um, and... Uh, So people are actually listening to it, which is crazy because before we were at the time in 2001, we were losing fans as people became older and had less time to go out to go see bands and see live shows. So we were sort of playing to uh, smaller and smaller crowds. Um, The song is called Almost Nightfall. It uh, is about what everybody can relate to that time you come home and your parents are fighting and going at it and you don't want to be around that in that house anymore. And you decide that you're just going to get out and start walking.
2: Hinged on dreams is swollen now with love's unseen. The fisherman's dancing and drunkenly lurches. The street spread-legged posed in their perches. The strongest of bows is drawn back in its arc. The longest of arrows hits right on the mark. I'm counting my quarters to see if I stack up. I ain't going home and I'm not going to back up. It was almost nightfall, it was almost dark. Street lights from here the skyline appeared like a grid of electric sparks. Skyward I looked down, I wished on a star. is that way it was almost nightfall from below It was almost nightfall, I had plenty of time to kill If I go home now they'll be yelling and baying and fighting a battle of wills And me I'd played peacemaker so many times and it never not once brought me peace The cost, and they'll fight and they'll argue to one or the other of them falls asleep so for most of the night I'll be walking Don't I wish I could step out of time The chill of the evening is sudden, And I am not dressed to be out here all night It was almost night long From below rose the dust From above fell the twilight It was almost oh, enough, enough. It was, it, was it was almost enough It was almost It was almost enough It was almost enough So here I am walking in circles I can't even go to my home Looking above me the heavens are pierced The starlight escapes through the dome So the fertile mind that dreams to a fault Takes the words of the wise with a half grain of salt But lacking a visible target implodes And wanders all night in a rat's maze of roads It was almost nightfall It was almost dark Streetlights from here to the skyline appeared Like a grid of electric sparks Sky I looked and I wished on a star It was only an aeroplane I guess that's a wish that will never come true Hate to squander my wishes that way It was almost nightfall from below But
0: So, Destroyer, the fourth KISS studio album. It's been referred to as the spit-shined Cadillac of KISS albums. It's generally considered to be the best KISS album by both fans and the band themselves. And yet, at the time it came out, it was initially considered a failure, and at least one KISS fan said that he wanted to go to Canada and punch Bob Ezrin in the nose for destroying
3: Kiss. Wow. <laughs> well, um, that's that's a little extreme.
0: Yeah. Well, so so you know it's it's interesting, right? They were just coming off of the success of Alive One, which went gold, and their first hit single, Rock and Roll All Night, and they could have taken the easy route. I'm sure there was a lot of pressure on them at that point to make another album that was just 10 more songs written in the style of rock and roll all night. Um, They didn't do that. They chose to try to up their game, and I think they alienated a lot of diehard fans, at least initially, right? Because I think you had a lot of purists that... uh, saw David Bowie, saw Alice Cooper, um, going for more, Lou Reed, so- Lou Reed, going for more sophisticated arrangements. And there's a certain contingency of rock fan that sort of believes in the purity of rock and roll being just drums, bass, two guitars and vocals.
1: Right. And I'm going to give you my personal opinion between the first three kiss albums are almost, un they're not unlistenable to me, but they are, almost like, isn't this quaint, listen to this, whereas Alive One and Destroyer are the first Kiss albums that I want to listen to uh, because they're awesome. You know what I mean? I'm not listening to them for historical precedent, like the first three. Uh, I instead am listening to to it to enjoy it.
0: Right. Well, it's funny you say that, because there was a young 16-year-old fan, rock fan, that Bob Ezrin used to kind of use to keep his ear to the street and he apparently told uh bob that there's this great band out called kiss you really need to work with them because they're awesome but their albums suck okay and uh I, i believe kiss ran into bob ezrin um they were doing a live canadian tv appearance um, and they you know, they shook hands and, and certainly Kiss was aware of, of Bob's work with Alice Cooper and Paul said something about, well, we should work together someday. And then eventually the call came through and, um, and they decided that they were going to work together. So, in between the tour from Dress to Kill, but before the Alive One tour, they got together and in four days started recording basic tracks for what would become Destroyer.
3: Actually, you know what, uh, David, the, the, um, up in Toronto, um, I guess Ezrin has mentioned after the fact, he told, he added another little small part to that story when the band met in Toronto. You know, he... um he went down there to meet Kiss, knowing that you know he was hoping to get work out of it. And so he actually took um, kind of a, a high-risk approach that ultimately worked. When he when he was finally introduced to Paul Stanley, they, they you know they struck up uh, you know like the, you know small talk, and then he cut right to the meat of it. And he said, "Paul, are you happy with your records?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, right. Yeah. I mean, that is a really bold approach to take, but. Apparently, he hit the right chord because, you know, like it was a few weeks later, he got the call from O'Coin. And so, <laughs> well, yeah.
0: well, so here's the it's interesting because I found out something doing research about the background to this. Right. Everybody thinks, OK, Kiss was riding high on Alive live one, but a live one had actually only gone gold by this point. So which was good. It was, you know, it was uh, a success and they were finally making money. Um, but. Casablanca didn't necessarily believe that this wasn't just a fluke. I mean, they had put out three KISS albums that hadn't made any money, and so now they had one double record that was making some money. Um, So they re-signed KISS to a deal, but it was only for two albums.
1: Yeah, I read that too. They only—for two albums because they— showing that they weren't sure that KISS would actually— uh, survive. They they wanted to be able to bail if they could. I think is what they were trying to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. They wanted to keep their options open. So now, Andrew, you were saying uh, just before we started recording that you had done some research about some of the reviews that the album got at the time.
3: I did. Yeah, I found I found a couple. Um, one of which is uh, I'll, 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 I'll read the longer one first. It's 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 three short paragraphs. But I found the the album review that came out <clears throat> in the June third. 1976 issue of Rolling Stone. Uh, it was written by a guy named John Millward. Interestingly enough, the album was actually released on March 15th. So this album didn't come in, and so with the June 3rd cover date, it was probably this probably came out in mid-May. So this review didn't even run till the record had been out for two months and had already gone gold. But here's what Mr. Millward had to say: It's not entirely positive. Um, and one of the one of the biggest thing, one of, I don't know, I, I find that like reading the old nasty reviews or at least less than positive reviews about the early kiss albums is still one of like the greatest things ever. So dig into this one and love it. Um, Okay. There's no doubt that destroyer is Kiss's best album yet or that Bob Ezrin, Alice Cooper's heavy handed wizard of heavy metal production who helped write seven of the nine tunes here has made the difference. But despite Ezrin's superb production, kiss still lacks that flash of creative madness that could have made their music interesting or at least listenable the (laughs) lead-off song rock city begins with 90 seconds of cooper-like effects the sounds of the breakfast table and a news announcer in the background reading the story of a kid who died in a head-on collision then a flashback to the doomed youth entering his car that night his mind undoubtedly on the song that follows and finally in the coda the screeching crash unfortunately KISS entirely lacks the satiric distance that often made Cooper's use of such conceits genuinely funny. And worse yet, such gimmickry is the best Destroyer has to offer. The songs, save for two bloated ballads, are relentless riff rockers rooted in patently pedestrian drumming. Although constructed with professional aplomb, making use of a wide array of heavy metal conventions, there's nothing new here. Even when an effective melody, such as the rabble-rousing shouted-out-loud, is presented, the lackluster performances dampen the effect. The vocals are undistinguished and emotionally empty. The lyrics, about partying and the rock scene with plenty of campy S&M illusions, trite. Worse yet, there's not a memorable guitar solo on the album.
0: Wow. <laughs> wow. Well that uh yeah well you know chris kiss was never a a critics band or a critics darling particularly back then
3: they were not and um and so and you know kiss and you know rolling stone um had a thing about you know like kiss kiss was not alone in terms of like the the harder rock bands that rolling stone would just get out the knives for and so but it's you know it's one thing to say, I don't like the record, but some of the things that he says are just flat out wrong. And so, Yeah, yeah, just,
0: yeah. yeah. yeah it, Absolutely. Uh, and you said you had a, uh, s- a
3: second review that you would reference? S- a second, shorter one. Uh, there was legendary critic for the the New York Village Voice, the free paper there, a guy named Robert Christgau who, um, you know, people would grab that, you know, it was a free paper on the street, and people would grab it just to read the reviews and then throw it away because he was that, you know, that prominent and the the, the reviews were generally very short one paragraph at most but he could be mean and uh now he he basically it turns out he must have been a kiss fan on or at least a supporter on some level because he's from new york and the band were so here was his review of uh and he reviewed records from a plus to f and like you know like school you know grade style okay and so here's here's chris gals review Like most hard but not heavy groups, wildly favored by young teens such as Alice Cooper and BTO, these guys have always rocked better than adults were willing to enjoy. But pro-producer Bob Ezrin adds only bombast and melodrama, their least interesting record. (laughs) C+. C Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah, I don't—well, it's—yeah—
3: I okay, um, but to give you an, just as an aside, let me give you an example of how vicious Chris Gow could be. Sure. Right around the same time, there was a Brazilian jazz singer named Flora Purim. She's uh, very, very famous. She put out a string of records in the 70s, and she actually, very famously, it turns out, She got popped for cocaine possession in 1974. And because it was 1974 and because she was a woman and because she was not an American citizen, she spent a year and a half in federal prison in Terminal Island Mm. uh, here in Los Angeles just for coke possession. And right when she got out, she put out her next record. Open your eyes. You can fly. Right. And um, Chris Cowell's one sentence review was. Shut your mouth, and maybe they'll let you land
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, you know well
3: I'll, that that actually
1: at the end of my love of reading rock magazines, I started to realize the only uh, reviews that I ever wanted to read were the bad ones <laughs> I stopped I stopped wanting to care what I just the only ones I wanted to read is when they were like tearing something to pieces
0: well I, uh, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said all reviews are a form of autobiography right they they frequently tell us much more about the writer of the review than what they are reviewing itself
3: yeah yeah that is yeah. true yeah mm-hmm. yeah there, there's definitely an element of truth to that absolutely
0: although it's interesting he mentions the audience of of young boys that was primarily Kiss's audience at that point and apparently Ezrin came to the band and he said there are almost no women at any of your concerts you appeal to 12 to 20 year old boys um i think the way to expand your demographic is to uh be like marlon brando in the wild one that is you can still be tough badasses but you can also be the villains with hearts of gold that all of the women want to save and change. So you need to figure out a way to show a little bit of vulnerability. Now at the same time, Ezrin also referred to the band as unfettered images of evil and sensuality. So there was kind of a a dichotomy there. Um, But that was Ezrin's approach to trying to to make Kiss something that they had never been before, which I think probably plays a large part into the actual title and concept of the album, Destroyer. Um, The famous Ken Kelly concept art is the band uh, playing in basically a wasteland with a burnt-out city behind them, Uh, very reminiscent of the Indian goddess Shiva, um, the goddess of dance, destruction, and creation, the idea that all creation comes out of the destruction of what has come in the past, and uh, Kiss, is, Kiss is definitely playing on that idea, both with the album art and the contents of the album. Um, I was As I was listening to both Destroyer and Destroyer Resurrected today, I made some notes here. Um, this is just kind of a general, my general thoughts about the album. It's both operatic and cinematic in nature, where women are queens, men are gods and kings, and souls can be lost or sold. There's there's a mixture of high culture and low culture at work throughout the album, from Greek and Norse mythology, Beethoven, Charles Dickens, T.S. Eliot. Um, there's the idea of a concert as the rite of passage. Uh, there's the theme of youth coming of age. And the idea that we have the power to rebel, to live our dreams, break out of our cages and take over the world. Oh,
1: nice. Yes. Um, All right. Well, that works. That about sums well, up the podcast. I'm out.
3: That's good, right? Also, too, I think in terms of what Ezrin wanted to bring to it, I think that um, the other side of that is that he had pe- he had in the form of, of Stanley and Simmons, two guys that were certainly going to be receptive to that because they these are guys who you know you ask them now who were your you know who are your influences and they'll routinely go back to the Beatles the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin who were all taken seriously as songwriters eventually Uh, maybe Led Zeppelin actually had a much rougher ride but I think that in terms of you know they never stopped wanting to be better and they never stopped wanting to be bigger and so this was the first time that they really had somebody that said um, you know I can make you bigger and I can make you wider and I can make you broader and I can make you deeper, but you do have to listen to what I say. And, um, but I think, and, and they were, you know, they went with it.
0: Right. And when you say they had to listen to what you say, Bob Ezrin's approach was he was the camp counselor, right? He literally had a whistle around his neck and would refer to them as campers and would blow the whistle to get their attention and would force them to, ...tune their own instruments without using tuners, uh, he once stopped one of the recording sessions to give them a lesson in music theory, um, he was so unimpressed with Peter's inconsistent drumming, both in terms of, uh, him not playing the same part twice, and him not keeping his tempos, that he got out a huge cowbell that he would hit with a stick, and make Peter watch him hit it to stay on the beat, um, Gene's.
1: Gene's <laughs> I heard it was a, a click track he made actually using like a. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, one or the other. They didn't have drum machines, yeah. so he may have made his own. But you know. he
1: made a, a click track that was just
0: him tapping a, a box or something I had heard. But okay. That yeah. That could be. That could be. Um, you know, he, he yelled at Gene for stopping playing during one of the live takes. He said, Never stop playing unless I tell you to stop playing, right? Um, this is the first time that Ace was ever replaced because he didn't want to commit to doing work. He had a card game. So, you know, Ezrin calls in a ringer. So so Ezrin was not pleasant to work with, and they did not, at the time, I don't think it was necessarily a painless experience for the band. Um, and I think there were a lot of people at the record label that weren't sure that what they had accomplished was uh, something that was a good idea especially when the first three singles from the album tank in the United States, right? Um I'm having a hard... Is that real? Yeah, okay. Shout I mean, It Out Loud, uh, mm-hmm. Flaming Youth, and Detroit Rock City do, do nothing. Now, Shout It Out Loud, ironically enough, becomes a number one song in Canada, but not in the United States.
1: Okay, and then it's Beth that saves the album, though, is Beth it? saves I mean, the album. That was-
0: Now, Bob Ezrin um, was pissed at the band because they were already thinking about how are we going to follow this up? And he was part of a consortium of of producers up in Canada, so he kind of had a boss. And Kiss asked his boss if if he would be interested in producing the next album without consulting Bob. So Bob did not speak to them for years after the making of Mm -hmm. Destroyer. He was not happy. They were not happy until Beth hit. So um, let's get into this as a as, as track by track thing. First track kicks off Detroit Rock City.
1: All right. I want to take that right away because Detroit Rock City, if you've seen any list that I've ever made of my top 10 songs ever recorded in the history of Western mankind, Detroit Rock City always tops the list. Sometimes Close to the Edge by Yes comes in is, is second or sometimes it's first and I had doing all the research I did for this album, I have to say that I now have to ding that song a lot further down because what I'm discovering is, first off, I listened to the um, the demos that were recorded in 75, and there is a beginning to that song. It doesn't have the story to it that I like so much that is what makes the song stand out. Um, but they at least had that riff. But the more I... Learn about that song. The more I realize that that is actually a Bob Ezrin creation. The bass line that Gene Simmons plays, according to Paul Stanley's book, Bob Ezrin taught him. You know, said this is what you have to play. And I, I, my whole life, I'm like, well, Gene came up with this killer Motown lick in the middle of this hard rock song. That's why this song is so great. And then the guitar solo, the apparently was also written by Bob Ezrin. This, this, is, this is gutting to me, because it's like my favorite song by Kiss, one of my favorite songs in the history of the world, and I'm finding that it is basically a construct of Bob Ezrin, not really of the band Kiss.
3: Well, um, here, let, let me interject there. Um, what I can tell you is that um, um, Bob Ezrin, I believe, um, you know, he's credited as the songwriter, so he's always been there, and he always was, But I think I believe his like when on when you get into like the uh, the nitty gritty nuts and bolts side of the music industry, which is music publishing, which is the actual songwriting uh, credits for the song. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The points on the song. Yeah. Yeah. My understanding is that Ezra's share is around um, it's around 25 percent and Stanley has the other 75 percent. So this was never I guess if you if you none of us read songwriting credits as a kid. And I guess, you know, you say, uh, but it turned out, yeah, he was, uh, um, you know, it sounds like if, if he wrote the bass line and the guitar solo, that'll get to 25% of a song. Um, cause they're two. yeah, I mean, okay, okay, yeah. I, yeah, if but I listen it's, it's, to those
1: demos, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. carry on. Sorry.
3: Yeah. I guess it's, it's weird that, that I know that, that there, there's a certain, you know, like, um, kind of like rule of thumb and rock and roll that, that. That rock bands are supposed to be completely self-contained in terms of uh, in terms of writing, um, and many are, but at the same time, um, you know, K- Kiss is one of the ones that was not, uh, starting with this record. And the thing about it is, I'm because they were writing the vast majority of their own material, and Bob Ezrin was coming in and taking what they were writing and injecting ideas into it and making it better. I'm okay with that. It's um, that's what it, that's. That's what a producer does on the high end of the rock and roll thing. I mean, like, um, you know, Pyromania by Def Leppard, pretty much every song on there has got the same treatment from Mutt Lang. And- yeah,
1: no, okay, I'm, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's it's definitely, like, I'm, it's still not leaving my list of top ten, but it's is and it's still a great song, but it just at the time, I was like, are you kidding me? The more I read about it, the more I was like, you know, the two things to me that really stand out about that song I mean, the lyrical story also always struck me as like, well, this is at least, this is pretty original. You know, this is something that's not your standard rock song. That's why it always uh, was considered great by me. So, and I understand that. I understand the producer's got to feed a lot into it and help shape it. And then, if you and again, I listened to all those demos, and the demo is definitely not as formed as Detroit Rock City. You know what I mean? So, Ezrin definitely pulled it together.
0: I was just going to say, uh, to me, the reason why it is a great song is because it has the same kind of underlying tension and contradiction about it that Rock and Roll All Night has, which is, you know, in Rock and Roll Night's case, um, on one hand, the chorus is kind of this anthemic call to rock and roll and partying and, and hedonism, but the song itself is really about a guy who is trying to get laid and... Uh, is with a party girl that just wants to do anything but that. And and Detroit Rock City, on one hand, is a celebration and a recognition of the fact that Detroit is the first American city to embrace KISS, uh, the first place they can headline in arenas, um, but it's also the story uh, based on a true story about a KISS fan that um, died in a drunk driving accident on the way to a KISS concert. Um, so, you know, it's, it is a, it's sold live as a celebration of a rock and roll city. And yet the underlying tension is that it's also kind of a tragic cautionary tale. Um,
1: well, yeah, it's a great song about rock and roll. It's about the dark side of rock and roll and how it can uplift you. And as also has this horrible underbelly to it of death. And yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, but the contra- uh, I mean that is one of the reasons I like the song is the contradiction there.
3: Right. Yeah. David, speaking of those lyrics, I know it's it, you know that uh, apparently it, it is based on you know a story of a Kiss fan who died in you know in a, in a wreck. Um, do you know where the wreck actually happened? I don't think because- it was Detroit. No, because here's 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 what I was able to, to dig into it. There's a guy named James Campion who wrote a 400-page book called Shout It Out Loud, The Story of Kiss's Destroyer and the Making of an American Icon. He wrote a 400-page book about just the making of this record. And the one thing that he has never been able to figure out is where did this accident actually happen? Because apparently Paul Stanley said in an interview it happened to somebody in the Carolinas. Okay. And But the problem is this guy has been looking for years and he's never actually been able to find documentation of an incident and no one's ever come forward saying, Oh yeah, it was my kid or like it was our friend or whatever. And so one of the big mysteries is, you know, the the band, you know, the band set on the record. Yeah. It was based on, on a fan of ours, not from Detroit, but no one's been able to ever like one of the, one of the big, the last great mystery of, of destroyer is where did this, where did this actually happen? Right.
1: Right. I'd be willing to buy it's an apocryphal tale. I mean, they probably that's, just made it up to give it more credence.
3: That's, 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 that's all. Make it very, cooler. I think that, that, that very well may be the case because it's, it's one of those things where by now somebody would have said something. Um, yeah. Uh. Even if I make somebody... up
1: stories about myself all the
3: time, man. Follow yeah, it. <laughs> like, like there, there's that famous photo of a sailor kissing a woman on the street, uh, right, like right at the end of World War II. You know the the, the real famous one, the Dunsinane. Yeah, and apparently nine different women have claimed that they're the woman in the photo. <laughs> and they apparently
1: actually apparently they did actually find the woman, and she said she didn't want to be grabbed like that. Like she's actually struggling in it. I've heard in other stories. Yeah. Interesting. Oops. <laughs> Yeah, that, it's it's. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, again, it's part of the Me Too movement, and I mean, yeah. I, it definitely is weird if that is actually the true person coming yeah. out about it. Yeah. yeah but that, it does speak to that side of things.
3: Yeah, um, but, but I think the apocryphal, um, I think the, 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 the apocryphal approach may be the correct one. I think you're right.
1: Yeah, and, and okay, so Detroit Rock City, again, great song, goes right into King of the Nighttime World, which... Works beautifully the way that they seg segue together.
0: Yeah, so that song was actually in many ways a cover song uh, from an unreleased album by Hollywood Stars. Uh, that was a band that Kim Fowley was a member of.
3: Kim, Kim was the manager and the producer. Oh, he, okay. I'm sorry. He was the and, manager and producer. And, and, and um, Mark Anthony, who is who is one of the four people co credited with the co write on on the Kiss King of the Nighttime World. He was the guitar player and vocalist of the Hollywood stars. And Fowley was the guy who put the band together.
1: Whenever you say
3: Hollywood stars, I think of stars on 45. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, No, this was and this. And also the, the Hollywood stars version of King of the nighttime world is on Spotify now. So you can go listen to it. There's only about 4,000 plays and it's probably, you know, mostly kiss fans going, Oh, there it is. Let's try, you know, So, uh, but you can actually hear it. But, um, Yeah, do you want to talk, uh, um, David, do you want to talk about the original version?
0: Well, yeah, so the original version is much more of kind of a bar band, sort of stonesy arrangement. Um, They didn't, Kiss didn't alter the lyrics uh, very much, if at all, um, but the actual, the, the arrangement of the song is significantly different.
3: Yeah, it's I mean, the lyrics were essentially the the, the the melody line of the lyrics and the lyrics themselves essentially remained untouched. There may have been a word or two changed. Um, and um, the but on the music side, the only thing from the original version that made it to the new version was the first chorus of the Hollywood stars version is essentially the breakdown chorus of um, the KISS version where they play the power chords toward the end of the song. But aside from that, um, Ezrin and Stanley rewrote the entire music bed. And it's it's a better, more powerful, more dynamic song. Um, They really, really, um, they they took an existing lyric and an existing concept, but the chords are slightly different. Um, There's a lot more going on. Um, The drumming is a lot more frenetic. Um, And there's, yeah, there's just, um, they really, they really, really did a nice job with it. I was, I guess, for some reason, I I knew that there were, you know, that there were, you know, somehow there had been outside help on the song. I didn't realize that it had been essentially like, you know, the skeleton of another song, you know, like, I'm hesitant to call it a cover per se, because they've essentially, I mean, it sort of is, but I mean, you know, they, they took existing lyrics and melodies and then wrote a different song around it. Uh, or di- put a different music bed around it. But again, this is something that, I'm, you know, this wouldn't, ha- I'm not sure this would have happened without Bob Ezrin, And um, it's... The performance by Paul Stanley
1: on it seems a little stilted in places in the way that he delivers his lines. It seems like he's sort of trying to jam the, all the syllables in at one place, you know, instead of, you know, just doing the standard rock and roll slur over it. Um, did you guys catch that or
0: is that just something I'm
1: getting? Like it just felt a little wonky occasionally when he was singing.
0: You know, that didn't bother me. The thing that, that sort of struck me, that's odd about the arrangement is how the bass drops out completely during the first verse, Uh which is Uh, unusual for, um, any kiss song to do that.
3: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, essentially the, um, the, the lyric pattern that he uses is pretty similar to you know, the original version. I think maybe if anything, the hesitance may have been, or just, you know, I mean, cause you know, he took, he took a lot of different takes, but it might be that these weren't lyrics that he wrote. And yeah. so maybe there was something that, you know, he, he probably, you know, when you're writing for yourself, you're going to, you know, get, you're going to write for your own cadence and stuff like that. And maybe this was just a little different.
1: Well, I, I'm just saying that, it, you know, and all the things that we can do, you know what I mean? I mean, just the way he sings, it, it always comes it, – it, it feels like he's trying to, like, articulate everything like he's public speaking rather than singing a rock song. But that's just my take on it. I mean, I, honestly, to be perfectly honest, I listen to these both uh, Kiss Destroyer and Kiss Destroyer Resurrect at least – four or five times in the last two days. So it just, to me, I'm picking up on weird things that I never even really noticed from prior listenings.
0: Sure. Hey, Andrew, remind me now, on the original version of the song, does it have the build where he, you know, he does that whole, I'm the king. I don't think it does. I don't think so either.
3: Uh, No, it's pretty, it's a little more straightforward. It's um, a couple, it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the verses are there. The first chorus is the breakdown chorus. The second chorus is actually not a breakdown chorus, and I think there might have been a, a fade out. I mean, I listened to it once, so no, I don't think that. Uh, I don't think the build up is there. But um, it was, yeah, it was just uh, it was the uh, the Hollywood Stars arrangement was just a lot more straightforward.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Which makes us the first kiss song to really feature a build up like that. And the second one is also on this album. So we'll get to that. Um, anything else uh, anybody want to say about uh, King of the Nighttime World before we go, go on to God of Thunder?
1: No, I, I, I like the song. It's a, love, Detroit yeah, I, Rock I, City.
3: I, I love the song. I mean, in terms of like a one-two punch to open a record, um, I mean, you gotta. I mean, it's, it's still one of my all-time favorites. Um,
1: yeah, and then to go into God of Thunder, that's freaking amazing.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's like three great songs. God of Thunder is interesting, right? Because it was written by Paul Stanley. He originally intended to sing it. Um, the tempo was much faster. Uh, and some of the lyrics were different. There was a line about, we make love till we bleed. So Ezrin took it, slowed it down, uh, decided Gene was going to sing it. They rewrote some of the lyrics. And uh, James Hetfield from Metallica called God of Thunder, the heaviest song ever written.
1: I'd be willing to buy that. Yeah, that's, it's one of my favorite songs. It's always been one of my favorite songs. And the um, the recordings of the kids and the scary movie stuff, I mean, if you listen to Destroyer enough, it starts to sound a little bit like a concept album to me, at least those first three songs. You know what I mean? Like the person dies and then travels on to, you know, these types of things. But I... um. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a it's a near perfect song. I mean, and yeah. and it shows Kiss is beginning with it's who we are. You know, we are gods of thunder. We are from the wasteland. We are, you know, all of these things that you fear kind of thing.
0: Right. And I think it also is a good argument for Bob Ezrin as a mad genius, because it's one. Thing, oh, yeah. It's one thing to understand music theory and to be able to do the kinds of, you know, really kind of orchestral-type guitar arrangements on Detroit Rock City. It's another thing entirely to say to Gene and Paul, um, you know those random recordings of my two sons playing with some walkie-talkies going back and forth in the studio while you guys are playing? Well, we recorded those, and we're just going to drop them semi-randomly into your track.
1: Yeah, and it it works really well because it's not... um it's not fitted to the actual song itself. So it adds a nice, you know, sort of level of, uh, subconscious meaning to it. You know, we're, you, uh, you know, if you listen to it enough, you start to hear that they do say mom, dad on there and Hey, and you know, and then there's the, the, the signal click at the end the woo you know, like that or whatever. But, um, at the time it's, you know, it sounds like a horror movie. Then it sounds like, you know, um, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, it sounds like people running and being scared. And, but at the same time, you can never really interpret what
0: they're actually saying. No, it, it's kind you know, of a, which, a Rorschach test, and there's nothing scarier than the laughter of unseen children.
1: Well, which, which is interesting because, it, right, right. Because in the beginning, they're screaming, and you hear them say, Mom, Dad. And then halfway through the song, they're just giggling. And you're like, Ah, okay. So the, they're on the side of the demon now. You know what I mean?
0: Again, like I said, Rorschach test, because I I think something completely different.
1: (laughs) We are sons of English teachers. We're going to read way too much into this.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, there are references to, you know, obviously Thor, the God of Thunder, Superman, um, the, waste, right. the Wasteland, you know, um, he's mixing mythology when he talks about, you know, Daughter of Aphrodite and I Was Born on uh-huh. Olympus, you know, Greek mythology and Norse mythology. But, um, you know, again, this is Gene and Paul being the comic book geeks uh, kind yeah. of coming uh-huh. out again. And, and you know, the whole idea of the Wasteland. OK, I, I'll be honest with you guys. I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with the line about I am the Lord of the Wasteland because... I know that yes, there was the Who song "Teenage Wasteland," and you know it was it was conceptually not completely un, unheard of or unspoken in rock and roll. But Gene was an English teacher, right? So I have to think that he would have been <laughs> at least aware on some level of the poem, The Wasteland, by T.S. Eliot. Okay.
1: The women come and go speak of Michelangelo. <laughs> That's it. Oh, man, dude. Okay. Well,
0: part five of The Wasteland is called What the Thunder Said. Okay. Oh,
1: sweet. Ooh. Mother of Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Right.
0: right. So, so, and as as we're reading, let me just let me just share with you. I- a couple of lines from that part. All right. A woman okay. drew her long black hair out tight and fiddled whisper music on those strings and bats with baby faces in the violet light whistled and beat their wings. Now,
1: <laughs> I'm on to buy it. Yeah. By the way, my quote was from the love song of Alfred J. Prufrock. Sorry, not the wasteland. Okay. Um, That's, uh, I, I'm willing to buy that completely. I think that song is a culture, you know, stew. Like you said, it mentions Thor and Greek mythology and I'd be willing to buy it. You know, I mean, why not?
3: I think that this is for the third straight song. Um, this is something, this is a song that demonstrates the difference between a good producer and a brilliant producer, because you have, um, Ezrin had, you know, he heard the demo and not only did he hear okay, um, this should be slower and more powerful, but the guy who wrote it is actually not the guy who should be singing it. And so not only did they do that, but Yeah, ended, good point. Up, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it ended up becoming and not only that, it became Gene, Gene Simmons' signature song. Yes. And so for es- to be that right about it, and to hear because you know the God of Thunder demo is on the Kiss box set, the one that came out around you know, the millennium or so, um, and you hear that. And I, I remember listening to it, thinking, would I have been? Would I have picked up on slow this down and have Gene sing it? I'm not sure that I would have. I mean, it's it, it seems totally intuitive now because we heard it the other way around for 25 years. But to pick up on that, that is that's what a great producer does. And it is for the third straight song. You have, like, had Bob Ezra not gotten involved, I don't know what these, you know, King of the Nighttime World might not have been on the record, but Detroit and Thunder would have been completely different songs and nowhere near as good. Agreed. And good point. Good you point. have already got three songs into it right now. You have got arguably three of the, you know, three of the of. of Three of the best songs that they ever did, three of the best recordings they ever made, and we haven't even finished side one yet. And so, And I always
1: uh, thought "God of Thunder" was a bass riff that was written. I didn't realize it was a guitar riff that I never realized
0: that. Yeah, the bass yeah, until just, now. Until the I realized is kind of just was, playing a straight, you know, yeah, uh, quarter yeah, note for most a, of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm like, it's like I've been
0: listening to it wrong my entire life. All right, great expectations. Charles Dickens' novel, and The Name of the Kiss Song.
3: This one threw me when I, when I was a kid. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, you know, God of Thunder, I mean, you you have these three just absolutely titanic belchers of rock classics, and then, you know, God of Thunder, you know, you know, fades into way, and, you know, you you, you leave whatever they're doing down in that subterranean evil world, and it's a strange section. Yes. What? Uh-huh. What the what in the hell is going on here? And it's Gene singing. <laughs> wait, wait. Like a minute ago, you were the God of Thunder. What just happened?
0: <laughs> Funny thing about that, that, the orchestra on this album, apparently they were not giving Bob uh, respect, right? Because he was a long-haired rock and roller and they weren't taking it seriously. So during lunch, he, uh, when the, the musicians left, he went in and slightly changed the tuning on one of the violas right and and just put it ever so sharp on one of the strings and then when the next time they were playing he's he called them out and he said stop stop second viola your a string is slightly sharp and of course he was right because he had done it and they were so impressed that he could hear such a slight variation that they you know they started uh taking their job a little more seriously
3: Oh, that's
0: smooth. <laughs> yeah, Bob
1: Ezrin seems to be possibly some sort of genius at this point. I don't really, I, I mean, you know what I mean? His, his, this is how I'm going to meet Kiss and get them to do, throw me some work. This is how I'm going to get respect from these guys. This, I don't know, man. Bob Ezrin may be the smartest man alive. Okay, so can I, can I take great expectations? Because I read it or I listened to it and um, I tried to match it up with the story. And I couldn't because I haven't written or read Great Expectations since high school. Um, And it obviously, I don't think it really follows the story much at all. But I I like the idea of the phrase where he's saying to the woman, you think I'm so great, but you've got great expectations. You expect more than what's going to happen. At least that's what I wanted it to be about. Now, obviously, it's not because at the end he, you know, is calling her name and she's reading between the lines and. You know, everything's happening that's supposed to happen. But um, I don't know. What's your take on the meaning of the song? Because lyrically, that was what was – I was sort of fascinated by matching it up with the Dickens story. So, Andrew, what do you think? I think – I
3: don't know. I'm not sure I would run that deep with it. I would think – I think this is more of just like, you know, this is, um, you know, Gene Simmons's demon – uh, alter ego, um, which who is who is a very self confident uh, persona, um, just expressing that self confidence in a, an unusual musical setting.
1: Yeah, it's definitely yeah, it's a ballad. It's yeah, and then it's even got that stonesy choral thing at the end or whatever that uh, yeah well, sounds like can't get
0: yeah. Go ahead, sorry, Dave. I was just going to say to me, the title itself is Gene sort of taking the piss. Out of the like, the idea of being pretentious, um, in much the same way the song "Larger Than Life," you know, people talk about Kiss, yeah. oh, they're larger than life, and he says, "I'll show you something larger than life, baby. Look at what's between my legs." You know, this is yeah. you've got great expectations. It's you know th- those are that you're gonna meet me and I'm gonna make love to you. Those are your great expectations. Um, you know, it's in the finest tradition of blues, Hokum, right where uh acd sees things about you shook me all night long and sting says we made love for seven hours in tantric sex and then he later says well actually i was including dinner in a movie
3: but you know <laughs> so um <laughs> well i think it's also too the other the other reading of it would be that um um the the line you've got great expectation is the demon persona acknowledging that his female friends or fans are correct you know, it's an right, yeah, yeah, that's how I took it so too. be that's, that's how that's how I always saw it, and 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 so it's and so it could be both, but I just think it's 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 essentially I don't, like, you know, at this point, the demon persona was really starting, you know, it was developed at this point, and this was the, you essentially, you know, this was the album where it really, really, like, I mean, it's not maybe not 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 the perfect adjective, but this is where it really flowered, um, you know, particularly with with thunder. And I just think it's, I, I think this is almost sort of a continuation of that where, you know, maybe there is a little bit of tongue in cheek, but I think it's certainly, I think it's just, it's, 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 it's the demon persona on top of an orchestra.
0: Well, but it's also, it's not just about the demon, right? It's about the guitar player in the band. It's about the drummer in the band. So yeah,
1: yeah he it, talks about the drummer. Yeah. In a
0: way yeah. it's about the sort of transcendent connection between Kiss and their fans, Paul Stanley's famous quote, you know, you can't necessarily look like us, but you can feel like us when you see us on stage. <laughs> and right. and I think that that one of the things that Alive 1 showed was that there was a connection between the band and the fans that in some ways went beyond music, and this is kind of the first time that they're acknowledging that in the music.
1: Yeah, yeah it's it is the first we talked about their earlier albums being um, less about, about them trying to get laid, and this is the album where they are getting laid. It seems like, and "Great Expectations" <laughs> is the first sort of song about that. Um, and, you know, and that carries through on this album. There seems to be more, you know, more cock rock in this album. I mean, all the albums are pretty cock rocky, but this is the first one that seems to be. Like we're you know what I mean this is us proving who we are um, you know we finally made it one thing I noticed was the way that uh Gene's bass lines up with the piano mm. that's one of my things as as a bass player that's one of my things is i I can't stand playing in bands with pianos because once they have the bass section, what the heck is the point of the bass player yeah you know, you know what I mean? except to sit there and just go do 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 you know what I mean so that's So I was sort of impressed. There's a lot of piano on this
0: record, right? Because
1: yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. I I, I think we neglected to mention that on Detroit Rock City. And Um,
0: and I would say God of Thunder shouted out loud. I mean, there's a lot of those power chords have piano behind them.
3: Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm, definitely. Good point. Detroit and Shout are the two where it's really obvious. And I remember, like, it was um, when I was being forced to to take piano lessons as a kid. I think that was one of a handful of things that made me like dislike it less because Ooh. I was like, well, there's piano on a kiss record. You know? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. I don't get, I don't get to yeah. play this one. I, I, you know, I don't get to play it, but you know, it's um, you know, at least it's there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And it would just, again, another Ezrin trick that I think, if I remember right, the band were a little bit kind of, What are you doing? You know, like when they said we're going to put piano on this, and uh, they're like, "Wait, we're we're Kiss. We don't do that." Yeah. And Ezra was like, "Oh yes, we are." And wait, do you hear what? Wait, do you hear what it sounds like? And when, sure enough, when playback happened, they're like, "Ah, okay." So one more, one more notch in Mr. Ezra's Yeah, and
1: yeah, and again, he kept the uh, bass part. You know, it's a nice blending of the piano part and the bass part together, which I just noticed at the beginning. Let's flip the record. side two flaming youth that's my favorite song on the album actually maybe not my favorite but it's up there i like but it's a very alice cooper-esque song it's very straight ahead i like the line my uniform is leather and uh you know my weapon is my age or my, whatever my power is my age that's it my power is my age yeah it's a great song
3: i love it well, well you, you uh- you guys, uh, I, I think if you were looking at the songwriting credits, you will see that this is Ace Frehley's writing yeah. credit on this record. He's the he's the prim, he was listed as the primary writer, and it's also very unusual. Fraley, Stanley, Simmons, all three of them have writing credits on this, and then Ezrin is the fourth one. So this is very unusually a real collaboration between 75% of Kiss and 100% of the producer. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, what I don't know, and maybe because I, um, maybe you guys know, you know, who came up with which part. Um, I'm not sure what, what's what, but I, I think, um, I know, um, David, you tend to be an ace expert, so I don't know if you know. You know, it was, I, 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 it I know that there was a demo, was a
0: demo called, called yeah. Mad Dog that had kind of partial that riff that I think Gene did. His contribution was probably that. That part.
3: Are we thinking Stanley wrote the lyrics? Probably. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's definitely
1: Paul Stanley lyrics. Yeah.
3: Okay, so then, so you're looking with, with uh, as Fraley as being the primary composer. Simmons added Stanley with lyrics, and then Ezrin prop like did, you know, he's on there for a reason, and so he must have added something too. So is this if, the know, song that has the weird little keyboard part in it? It's a Calliope. Like? Uh,
1: that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. That's yeah. It. That's badass. That was really cool. I like that part of the song because it definitely adds to it. And it, yeah, Gene uh-huh. hated That's it. That's one of my. <laughs> of course he did, but it, it sounds really cool. It definitely adds another uh, level to it.
0: Right, it does, especially because you know a calliope is sort of associated with carousels and children and youth, and, and this is yeah, a song yeah, yeah, about yeah, coming exactly. of age. Um, it's they also
3: sold, they could have sold Kiss Calliopes at uh, merch stands on this tour.
1: <laughs> you need to contact Gene right now with that idea because that'll be on sale next year.
3: Okay, I will
0: do that. <laughs> it's also, I think, probably the first true kiss anthem in the in the modern sense of you know a song about empowerment and self belief and all that kind of mm-hmm.
3: stuff.
0: Agreed. Yes.
3: Yeah. It was. Um, I mean, yeah. There, there were no songs with that kind of intense on the first three. Kiss in time doesn't count.
0: No. Um, okay. <laughs> it's a song that Peter struggled with because uh some of the timing and the phrasing of the parts is uh not in in four four or at least it doesn't sound like it's in four four. I think there's a part that's in seven eight actually and that's uh,
3: got, that's that's gotta be all Ezra. that part
0: probably, probably yeah um which I think also explains why. They haven't played it live that much. They tried to play it live briefly back then, and they've, you know, brought it back on some of the cruises and things like that. It's never quite come off live, um, I think, because the feel of the song is really hard to recapture.
1: That's interesting yeah. that a recording. This is the first time we're running into the situation where the recording is better than the live version. Yes. For the first three records, in many cases, the live version was better than the recorded version. And now, this is the first album where we're running into recorded versions are actually better than the live ones, or easier, or better to. You know what I mean? You're talking about capturing a moment in the studio, which is something the Kiss could never really do up until this point. And that's got to be Ezrin. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I would say so. All <laughs> uh-huh. all right. Also, the song features a build that's very similar to the build in King of the Nighttime World. Um, and probably the only the second Kiss song ever to feature a build like that. So um that that's interesting. Now, Sweet Pain.
3: Oh, Mr. Sailor.
1: Come on, can not stand this song. I hate this song. <laughs> I really do not like this song at all. I've listened to it a couple of times. And I know that it has it has that quirk of having another guy playing the solo on it with Bob Warner or something. Dick Wagner. Um, Dick Wagner. Nice. Well done, John. Um, but I don't I, – it's the cock-rockiest of the cock-rockiest. Like I know that's Gene Simmons' thing, and I know I should somehow, you know, as a true Kiss fan, respect that. But it, the song – I, I, I listened to it twice, back-to-back, uh, to, back to see if I was missing something, and I wasn't. I don't like it. Sorry. Carry on. I'm sure you guys have better reviews of it.
3: Andrew? Um, I like the song. I think it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's classic seventies cock rock, but it's, you know, it's the demon, um, you know, and this is what, I mean, you know, in 1976, putting like vague, um, you know, S&M type stuff on a record that was being sold to teenagers, slightly edgy. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, true. you know, it's, it's you know, you know, this probably wouldn't sound that, you know, like, you know, maybe, you know, Lou Reed could probably do this, you know, without, you know, without anybody raising an eyebrow, but I think it was, um, I don't know. I think it's, it's, um, it is, uh, I, I like, I like, I like the song and, you know, it, it fits really good between, um, you know, the songs before it and after it. Um, and it just, I, I think it's, 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 it along with, thunder are for me like the two like normal manifestations of the demon persona on the record um i think expectations is kind of like the what are you you know what's going on here and so um i i i like it i give it a thumbs up
0: okay um uh-huh. i think musically it's interesting i think it's probably one of those songs that gene wrote to a needle drop kind of thing because the the whole you know kind of syncopation of those chords and stuff that da-da-da-da, is very I don't I don't see him coming up with that unless he's writing to a beat and this is still pre-drum machine. Mm, okay. Um, interesting production wise this is the one song on the album where the vocals, the verses are not in the center, um, which I I think was a sure sign that they knew a song that was about S and M was never gonna be a potential single because if they thought there was a chance that it would be a potential single, um, they wouldn't have taken the chance that the vocal could have collapsed if it got broadcast in mono. Huh. Interesting. Uh, okay. Wow, that's a cool fact. I didn't know yeah, that. I guess, okay.
3: guess they okay, we're not gonna release this one to AM radio, Arwen.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so okay. Now, shout it out loud.
3: Okay, I'd like to interject before we dive into this. Uh, as, I was diving, as I was finding things today, I found a really, really wonderful uh, quote from Bob Ezrin about this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and he said, you know, looking back on this time, one of my favorite memories of this entire experience of Destroyer was of Paul, Gene, and me sitting at the piano in my apartment on 52nd Street, writing Shout It Out Loud together.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that because this is, I wish that Shout It Out Loud was rock and roll all night. Sometimes.
0: Well, it's funny that you say that, because I had the thought listening to the song today, I think this is Ezrin's answer to rock and roll all night. Yeah. I think they played mm-hmm. You know, they played him rock and roll all night, and he said, you call that an anthem? I'll show you an anthem.
3: I yeah, I'll buy, I, I'll buy that entirely. Go ahead. Oh, I think uh, that certainly is the, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the intent, but the fact that they sat and knocked it out on a piano at his place makes me wonder if it was something that just sort of just came up like they're, they're, they're sitting at his place and he goes, Oh yeah, well, I like it. Want to do another one. Okay. You know, here, let's go sit down. And the fact that also you have uh, both Stanley and Simmons trading off the vocals is another, I think like very, you know, that's another sign that I think the hypothesis of okay, let's 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 write you a second rock and roll all night type anthem, um, and they nailed it. And and again, like you you can you know that's one more reason why you know you can hear the piano in the background, and that's well, I guess you know they wrote it on the piano, so it makes sense. But man, I would I'd I'd pay a hundred bucks to be sitting on the couch watching that happen, man. <laughs> oh hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's
1: got a killer. It's got a killer riff, and it's got. It's just a
3: perfect song. That's a hundred bucks in nineteen seventy-five dollars, by the way. Right.
1: <laughs> you guys are from Pittsburgh. You know the DVE plays rock and roll all night every freaking uh, Friday at noon. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I always wish it was shouted out loud. Sometimes you know. So I don't know. It's it's it's. I actually like it better than uh, rock and roll all night. But that may simply just be because. Rock and Roll Night has has been played to death.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's more of an anth- actual anthem, right? I mean, you know, treat yourself like number one. Do you need to be reminded it's time for you to take a stand? You know, there's actually uh, a much more the idea of teenage rebellion is much better embodied in the song.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, and
3: comment. also I think and and you know the band aren't half aware of this because I mean for most of the Makeup Return Era, Shout It Out Loud tends to be like you know they'll they'll do the opening song, but I feel like more often than not, Shout It Out Loud is either the second song in the set or it's in the first you know it's in the first blast of tunes before the break. Mm-hmm.
1: I think you're right. Yeah, that has. That, I would agree with that. Um, I would say the last time I saw yeah.
3: from, from Circus Onwards, I think it's almost like I know it was second tune in on Psycho. second tune in on the current tour, and a bunch of others but i think and so essentially it's they get their opener and then you know and then you have a big anthem and then you know they finish with, with rock and roll all night but they bookend they generally have been bookending their sets with those two and so mm-hmm. i think you know um all of that jives with the, you know you know the where the intent came from and where the where it's inspired what it was inspired by in the first place
0: okay now beth the song that saved the album
1: now, it's the grandfather to Home Sweet Home um, by, by Motley Crue. I mean, there's nothing super spectacular about it. I heard the Paul Stanley take on it, and he was like, and we couldn't even get a straight recording from Peter Chris. He couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. Uh, all this kind of stuff where he's talking about how, you know, it was nearly impossible to actually get this song written. And in fact, it's really just Bob Ezrin who wrote it and took 15 bazillion takes on Peter Chris's vocals.
3: Well, hang on there uh, yeah no it was it did take a lot of takes but it turns out that and i'm not sure about the melody but i know the lyrics were written by stan penridge who was um peter's former bandmate in chelsea before he was in kiss and oh, okay. the great like like this the great for me like the funniest thing about this song is that beth was originally called beck it was short for becky yes and i i found a i found a quote about this um Julian Gill, who runs the uh, KISS Concert History online website and has published that big stack of books about it, he did an interview with, 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 with Doc Penridge um, not long before he passed away. Uh, he, like, um, and I found this just absolutely amazing quote in it. So um, thank you, Julian, for getting, getting this out of, 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 of Penridge. Here's what he said. He said, Beck was written almost word for word, from bandmate Mike Brand's responses to his wife's constant phone calls that interrupted our rehearsals. And so, like, basically he said, after every line of the song, I want you to think of, like, somebody's wife yelling through the phone. Right, right. Yeah, the original <laughs> impetus was
0: uh, kind of a Yoko Ono kind of, oh, this woman's being a pain in the ass, I can't rehearse. And and that was Ezrin's brilliance, is that he flipped it on its head and 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 made it... Um About having empathy for her loneliness
3: yeah. yeah, and that's that that was that was very funny and uh, Henry Rollins does a great like in one of his his talking shows he yes. got he kiss and he he dissects the lyrics of Beth and essentially like takes that standpoint and just sets it on fire. It is so funny
0: yeah he but, he uh, has a great time with the line we just can 't find the sound that ever elusive yeah. sound in. You know? yeah. <laughs>
3: Right. All of that aside, I mean, the thing about this is, is that, yeah, it's a beautiful little tune. It's, it's, it's weird, like, just like Great Expectations. You're like, what the hell is this doing here? You know, I was, I was, when I was a kid, and I heard, you know, like, I remember the first time I heard, you know, Beth, it was like, okay, this is Kiss. And I'm like, um, you know, um, and I was expecting, like, power chords to come, you know, blaring out of the little clock radio. And it was like, what's this? Piano? you know that's kiss you know and you know because i knew what kiss looked like you know i and you know they had everyone you know every kid you know the the posters and the t-shirts and all of that so this was before i owned a kiss record but i was just shocked
1: weird aside there was a late 80s early 90s band called scrawl which was an all female sort of um punk slash post-punk band and they wrote a song called charles which is pretty much Beth flipped on its head, in which case it's a guy constantly that they're telling to wait around for them. Okay. So that was, which I always thought was interesting. And I, I, I wanted to like see if it was. And then I read an interview and they said, yeah, that it's basically based on Beth by Kiss.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So, so originally called Beck, they changed it to Beth because, uh, you know, Gene didn't want. People to think they were talking about Jeff Beck or playing for the other team or whatever, um, which made <laughs> made made for some interesting. Uh, if you look at the, the the magazines at the time, they talk about how Peter Chris's wife Lydia, uh, Peter's nickname for her was Beth, which I don't know how you get Beth from Lydia, but okay. They also said <laughs> things like um, you know this is Peter Chris's vocal debut, which. You know, which is, was just asserted by them, you know, despite the fact that he had sung lead on at least two other songs on previous albums, on Mainline, on Strange Ways, you know.
3: uh uh-huh. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, uh, revisionist history.
0: Right, right. Well, plus, people didn't have the internet to look these things up, and, you know, no, right. not that many people had bought those albums, so, you know.
3: Right. Oh yeah, why not.
0: But in I think the the key difference between a song like Beth and Home Sweet Home is Home Sweet Home is a power ballad. Beth is actually a traditional ballad. The drums never Yeah, good point. never kick yeah. in. There's no guitar solo. This is a song that I've heard on KDKA radio, right? I mean, it's a song your mother
3: could love. Right. I think um, my yeah.
1: mother did love it
3: in fact. Yeah. It. Yeah. And and, 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 and it ultimately was what, what gave the record the kick in the butt that it needed because, I mean, it was, you know, going back to the release dates so it came out on March 15th and it went gold on April 22nd. But this was back when gold, you know, record certifications were based on records that were shipped. And so, you know, th- those gold records, you know, those, those the, you know, 500,000 copies went out by April, but a lot of them sat in the stores all summer. And it finally, and I think it was August or September when Beth finally hit that year, and so the record finally, um, you know, the platinum designation came down on November 11th that year. So it, it essentially, that song alone helped prompt 500,000 records copies of the record getting sold in about three months. Yeah. And it, and and so that that's the other thing is that as we're as as much as like this is one of the stranger little corners of the Kiss catalog, and something that just runs so counter to you know, everything everything that you would ever expect about the band. It also was yet one more thing that was just like, you know, this record just turned so many things on its head, and this is yet another one where you have this big, powerful rock record that ultimately got saved and pushed forward by, like, the ballad that's the next-to-last track on the record.
0: Right, which was originally released as the B side of Detroit Rock City oh. because they thought oh. nobody would play it, and then they right. it, they they flipped it. So then they released Beth as the A side and put Detroit Rock City on the B side, um, as a, a different single release. Um, I think you know it, it 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 at once it it has a kernel of truth to it, which is that it's difficult for guys and touring bands to maintain normal human relationships, you, you know, long term relationships with females, and it also fulfills Ezrin's idea of showing vulnerability, you know, in terms of the types of characters that they're trying to portray to their audience.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Agreed.
0: Right on. Okay. Final song. Do you love me? I love the song.
1: Yeah. I like it too. And I can't even say why I like it. I mean, uh, because it's, I mean, yeah, it's just a great song. I like the way that there's like interesting little backing tracks in there and
3: you know, vocal backing tracks and things like that and I like it a lot. I like well, it a lot. It, it also this is in many ways um, this song for me sums up the Star Child persona. Okay. Yeah, cuz cuz because ultimately, you know, he's um, he wants to be loved.
1: Right, uh, it speaks to that vulnerability that they're trying he, to show. He, yeah. The,
3: rock dude but ultimately um what really matters to him at the end of the day is you know um is there a real emotional connection here which is in many ways like you know you you know two paul stanley books into it we know that was actually not like um that, that that was actually an extension of his real persona and so i think this is aside from being just a fun little stomp and rock and roll tune uh with lots of power chords and you know lots of room for you know, for Stanley to really deliver a really great vocal performance. And he does that. Uh, But I think it's also um, in a way it's, uh, you know, like it's his other signature song from this record, you know, along with Detroit and it bookends the album once again. So I think it's just, it, it, it is a, like, you know, it is a very satisfying conclusion. And not only that, it's not like a lot of album closers. It's not a seven minute stairway to have an epic. They're done and in and out in less than three minutes. And that is an extremely effective attack to take because you want it you, you want the song ends before you want it to. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
0: Good point. Yep. You know, I, I would say again too, there's a there's a tension in the song because on one hand, it simultaneously sells you all of the glamour. Uh, of the lifestyle of a successful rock and roll band, right? Limos and concerts and studios and high fashion and women and you know all that stuff. But also the the underlying pain of the fact that they're in a position now where everybody that they meet wants something from them that they can't completely trust anybody that they meet from this point on in terms of actually being interested in them for who they are, but what they can do for them.
3: Yeah. Yep. Exactly.
1: And it, the, I will point out that this is another example of the Paul Stanley over-articulation school of vocalizing, which, again, I guess I'm the only one picking up on. I mean, it, it works, but he it, it seems very. It's very important for him to have every word understood uh, when he's saying when he's singing. At sometimes at the risk of making it sound, you know, not flowing so well over top of the music bed.
0: Well, there's a there's an alternate version of the song in which he sings it in kind of a fey sort of <clears throat> um very um what's the word not masculine kind of way. Um uh-huh. you know, that was a constant struggle with them because they were sort of selling Paul as this um Potentially romantic,
1: romantic,
0: but also potentially effeminate. You know, bisexual. Even you know, there were hints of that, and yet they didn't want to. You know, it was a fine line, and and I think the the original vocals that he laid down for the song stepped over that line, and this Mm -hmm. is you know what they ended up going with.
1: Okay, all right, I'm willing to buy it. I mean, yeah, I got no complaints
3: about the song. Yeah, I think I I think like the. I think the approach he took was the right one. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so depending on what edition of Destroyer you got, you may not have heard this final track, because when I bought the album in the 70s, I guess it wasn't the first printing. and uh, Mine
1: definitely did not have this. Yeah,
0: on the subsequent printings, I think that at the Record Lab, they heard it and they thought it was a mistake, and they left it off. That's the story I've heard. But there's a little 90-second closer called Rock and Roll Party, that's essentially three or four different tape loops with heavy uh, reverb on them, um, this combination of Great Expectations chorus, uh, a snippet of Paul Stanley's rap from a live one, and the audience response, and there may be some other sonic weirdness going in there, going in there too, but that's what that is.
1: Yeah, it's I can take it or leave it. I mean, it's interesting.
3: The copy of Destroyer that I had as a kid was, how shall we say this, um, My a kid from across the street kind of permanently borrowed it from his older brother and brought it to my house, and so it was actually one of the first copies, so mine didn't have it. Okay, so we
0: should do a quick uh, look at Destroyer Resurrected, considering this is widely considered to be the best-sounding KISS album by a lot of fans one might ask why you would need to do destroyer resurrected especially because ezra was known for committing a lot of these sound effects and reverbs and delays to tape so he was limited to what he could change even remixing these songs but he did it um and there were some interesting results
3: yeah th- this was i'm a big fan of this um uh, i i actually think that that um if it's warranted in some records, you know, there's lots of records where it's not. But if Ezrin, as the producer, is thinking, "I'd like to go back in and have another shot at this because I think I can make it brighter or better," um, well, yeah, I, I mean, like, I'm gonna pay to find out what that sounds like, and I did. And and you know, when he approached, uh, when he approached Stanley and Simmons about doing it, um, you know, they apparently their response was great idea and so and and also the fact that it even happened i need to point this out too we're lucky that it even happened because um the original 16 trap master tapes were not destroyed in the universal fire in 2008 okay (laughs) and so this was 2012 when it came out so that was so that was good. But then the one thing that I also need to dive into here before we like, can I get into the mix is that uh, one thing that we didn't talk about. And for uh, in Detroit Rock City. Sure. Uh, the, the, the first time around is um, that old line moving fast down 95. Right.
0: And there is no 95 anywhere near Detroit Rock City.
3: No, here's okay. Here's what I. Was, I always thought
1: he was dialing 95, as in his speed. You know, he was. Well, here's, never here's the
3: thing. The lyrics in "and in, and in, in Destroyer" list doing 95. Do D-O-I-N, yes, exactly right? So yeah. Here's, so anyway, uh, so it turns out that the um the liner notes to "Destroyer" resurrected finally come clean on what actually happened. Now it turns out, move like Stanley was actually singing moving fast down 95 d-o-w-n what he was singing was i-95 which is the interstate that runs through new york city now they like and so that was a mistake and they didn't realize it until after the record was done what he was supposed to have sung was moving fast down 75 because i-75 goes all the way through michigan and straight through detroit Ah, so ah. they were like well moving fast down 95 has nothing to do with detroit so they actually wrote, like printed the lyric just to, to sort of get around it as doing 95. So I thought it was like, so essentially what they decided was that it was an alternate pronunciation of the word doing. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and, and as and, and by the way, as an impressionable, like third, fourth grader or whatever, who, hearing this record, I have to admit, like, admit, like I was like moving fast dow 95 wow i guess well paul stanley pronounces that word differently than i do I, <laughs> yeah. you know, like maybe he's right maybe he is there's a different way to do it and i remember like like trying that out at home like like that at night. Oh, oh that's beautiful i was hey, hey, oh, like you know hey mom guess what i'm dow and it was just like <laughs> and she went around and gave me this look like hey, did you fall on your head again today what, what? <laughs> i'm like okay well i guess this works for paul stanley but it does not work for me that's hilarious and so so um you know so it but it turned out that the entire time it was moving fast down 95 and he meant route i-95 but they just worked around it by just changing the lyrics yes
1: so uh before the internet (laughs) you could get away with anything
0: so, yes. so Ezrin fixes that. And then he also adds, it's interesting, right? Because if Detroit rock city really was just a party song about what a cool city Detroit is, then the chorus would be, you got to lose your mind in Detroit rock city. Now on the original destroyer that only happens once on this version, it happens
3: twice. Sure. And, and, and it's also, and, and I think for, you know, the overall, um, just the overall mix. I mean, how would you how would you describe the overall mix of Resurrected in um, compared to the original?
0: There's definitely a lot more separation between um, the guitars. You can, especially the kind of orchestrated harmony guitars. Um, the bass has a little more low end, a little more punch. I mean, Ezrin is kind of known for as a rock and roll producer. What he really cares about putting up front are the guitars and the vocals. Um, but you know, the, the drums and the bass have a little more punch and, you know, I mean, it's not night and day, but in most cases I would say it's an improvement, but not
3: all. What you said, I agree with. And I think like my overall take, like the first time when I was cranking it up in the car, when I, you know, like put it, you know, left Amoeba records with the new copy and put it in the car stereo and started driving back to work. And, and, uh, um, I just remember like, okay, I feel like it's like, there's a little more, kind of color to it yeah um, and and so i think it, it, it brought that out because i think you know i generally you know it's for the most part i think of the early kiss records is very like black and silver you know uh, um and this one had like you know the black and silver but kind of like the flame aspect of me just taking you know m- like subconsciously taking the cover art into like how i think about the record but i felt like there was more like you know in terms of reds and oranges and, and, some yellows purples, and- too yeah. And coming out, and so I really I, I thought that was um, that alone for me was worth buying the record again.
1: Yeah, the the bass parts are a lot brighter, um, more troubly. It's almost like they're somehow I don't know. I, I was trying to figure out how that would have happened. Like if it was recorded, how would you get it? But if you listen to the bass parts, they're less um, plonky, uh, for lack of a better word. The the bass, you know what I mean? They're they're more vibrant. They have more trouble to them. They are bouncier, for lack of a better word. Um, and again, uh, the more I tried to figure it out, the more I started to confuse myself because it would uh, what was recorded, was it filtered? Would it be on that tape already and then based on how it is brought out? You know what I mean? I, I didn't know. So um, I couldn't figure it out, but I know this between the two that the bass definitely sounds brighter
3: on Resurrected. Yes, and, um, and then the, other, the, the last thing that I've got on Resurrected is that um, uh, Ezrin put a little quiz at the very, very end of this, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this out and throw a pop quiz with you guys. Okay. Um, and he says, uh, uh, Ezrin says, There is only one very small thing on the whole album that was altered. I had the opportunity to correct. It's been vexing all of us for decades. Let's see if you can find it you guys know what it is? Well, that was the doing, right? Correct. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> so, yes, because they did fix it on resurrected.
0: Right. Um, now, the other big difference, I guess, is we finally get to hear Ace's solo versus Dick Wagner's solo um, yes. in, in Sweet Pain. You know, Ace's solo to me sounds like an idea. It doesn't sound like a completed solo. I can understand why they would have wanted him to do more with it. And, you know, he decided he'd rather go to a card game. So,
1: right. Yeah. It definitely is la- his, uh, Ace's solo is definitely lacking compared to the Wagner solo. Yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. I, I was, I was happy to be able to hear it. Agre- agreed. But, but yeah, it's, um, it sounds like, you know, it's, um, you, w- you wish Ace had like skipped the poker game and just like, like let, Ezrin chew him out for the night and make him, you know, so he'd come up with, a, with something else because Ace had the ability to just come up with amazing stuff right on the spot. But apparently, um, you know, this like on this particular time, he didn't feel bothered and or, or was just had had a rough day in the studio. And, you know, it could have been that when Ezrin said something like, Hey, this isn't, this isn't up to what you can do. I need you to do better. It might have been like, you know, at nine o'clock at night on a day when they'd been there since 10 in the morning yeah, and so so there's the it's it, um, you know it's it's too bad that it happened, but you know, and but ultimately, you can see why if that was what Ezrin was left with, or it was either that or somebody else to come in, you can understand why he called Wagner,
0: yeah, yeah, for
3: mm-hmm.
0: sure. So all right, to sum up, any last thoughts about Destroyer?
3: it's it's the best kiss studio record.
1: Yeah, it seems like it is. I mean, like I I said before, it's the first album where live won't match recorded.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I would say um, it was 10 years ahead of its time, which is maybe why it wasn't appreciated initially when it came out. But perhaps more than any other Kiss album, it has aged incredibly well. And I think if anybody's going to be listening to anything by Kiss... Uh, when Kiss is long gone, it will probably
3: be this album. Yeah, I think even Rolling Stone acknowledges it's good now. Yeah.
1: It's record number
3: 496 on their (laughs) top 500 (laughs) albums. Yeah, they just just recently released their most recent top 500 albums of all time, and they made it. So there you go. Uh, 496.
0: (laughs) That's right. So even Rolling Stone doesn't completely hate it and they hate Kiss. So that's, that's something. So thank you for, for being our guest this week, Andrew, uh, join us next week. You know, they say every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And as much as this album shows amazing growth for Kiss as musicians and songwriters and performers, um, I think it left them with a bad taste in their mouth. So they decided to do something that was much closer to who they were and much easier for them to do. And that was rock and roll over.